This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Lydia Yuknovich, author of the short story collection, Verge. Storytelling is a way to make the gap between your puny little you that you feel every day, like, what can I do? And the big events, storytelling's like a bridge between those two things where choices can vibrate a little bit instead of, you know, waking up every day and feeling like there's nothing we can do. We'll be back with Lydia Yuknovich in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January, embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Lydia Yuknovich, author of the novels The Book of Joan, The Small Backs of Children, and Dora, A Headcase, and the memoir The Chronology of Water. She is the recipient of two Oregon Book Awards and has been a finalist for the Brooklyn Public Library Literary Prize and the Penn Center USA Creative Nonfiction Award. She is also known for her widely viewed 2016 TED Talk called The Beauty of Being a Misfit. Her new short story collection is called Verge and features 20 short stories about women on the precipice of their lives in some way. They're living between pain and survival in a state of unmitigated want and in circumstances beyond their control because the velocity around them is too great. From children to mothers, from America to Eastern Europe, the stories are filled with a variety of women consciously or unconsciously finding a moment of transcendence, grace, or simply quiet, or finding nothing at all. We began the discussion with Lydia Yuknovich sharing what she wanted to accomplish with the collection. That title in this particular book is a real touchstone. It's a 
big deal. <laughs> um, and how this book came together is um, some of uh, older stories that I'd written with certain kinds of characters in them and some present tense stories I was writing with certain kinds of characters in them sort of tapped me on the shoulder or, you know, more like whapped me in the back of the head and said, hey, um, these are all characters who are on some kind of edge or who are living in the periphery or in a kind of in-between place. Or in some cases, in some of the stories, somebody's literally on an edge or precipice or verge of something, a choice, or living on the edge of a town or you know, about to drive into the ocean or something. And so when the realization that I had a collection of, of characters who were thematically trying to show me something, you know, yelling at me, this idea of edge existence or in-betweenness existence formed around me, you know, like people in a room. And it became clear that they all needed to live together in this one place where being on the edge was what united them or bound them together thematically. When you realized that, did any subsequent stories you wrote, were you more conscious of putting either a, a literal or, or metaphorical edge on them? Well, it was more like what it illuminated for me was just how often I write inside that space. And this is true in my novels and my memoir as well. I think I must have a deep connection to um, kind of falling to the side or not quite clawing my way to the center or whatever the mainstream is, <laughs> um, both for myself and for the people I tend to gravitate toward, um, we're not comfortable there. So it was more like it didn't, it didn't make me start writing some new stories that had those characters in it. It was more like it, these characters illuminated for me when I looked out all of them together that I've always had this tendency to write that space open, you know, like opening up. Um, and, and so that was the revelation about it. And, and I didn't write any new stories after I figured that out. They all kind of coalesced at some point um, and, and started shouting back to me, this is something that's important to you. <laughs> Isn't that so interesting that you can't see it until you kind of take a step back? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, when I was writing the, this is sort of um, embarrassing, but when I was writing the chronology of water, uh, it started off as a short essay when I was about 26, I think. And it was 10 pages long. And it was these little fragments. And I didn't see that they were all the little fragments were about water until someone read it and pointed it out to me. <laughs> And so that's how close you can be to it. Like, you can't see there's water in it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, like 25 years later, more than 25 years later, that same little story um, became a sort of blueprint for a book that had a strong metaphoric uh, cohesion unit, which was water. Uh, but, yeah, I, could, I'm, I am the writer, and so many of us are... Uh, where the big obvious thing is like a neon sign just behind your head. 
And I only learn it. I only really take it into my body and, and take it on as a, you know, something that's a skill. Um, when it's reflected back to me inside something I already made. So I guess, I guess that means it's inside the process, right? It's beautiful. I mean, in a way, it's probably like a, a cheaper form of therapy. <laughs> a lot cheaper. I just did a mental tally in my head when you said that of how much I've spent on therapy. Do you think it's helped? Therapy? Yeah. Yes. I know for a fact it helped me. Uh, I, I had several more than a decade long periods where I'm relatively certain it saved my life. Uh, but I would say that about writing, too. I would say that about storytelling. What What first attracted you to storytelling? Was it escapism in a way? Because I know you grew up in a difficult environment. Yeah, it wasn't that. And I'm not a writer who started young either. Um, I had some trauma growing up in an abusive home like so many people. And um, I wasn't a born storyteller and I wasn't great in writing in school and I flunked out of college. So I had a traumatic experience in my 20s, my early 20s. Um, and I'm about to say a very sad thing that some people know about, which is um, my daughter died the day she was born. And for whatever reasons, that stillbirth sent me into a pretty heavy psychosis. And I just didn't pull up or get better the way people around me thought I should or other people this happens to, you know, get help and pull up. And, and what I did instead was sort of lose my bearings uh, to the extent that uh, I even spent some time living under an overpass, um, kind of, you know, slipped or um, misstepped or uh, moved away from regular life and sort of to the side. Uh, maybe I was hiding. Maybe I just couldn't handle things. Who knows? But in that period, I filled up this spiral red notebook with just pages and pages and pages of little tiny writing that was, um, a lot of it was gibberish, I'm sure. Um, but later in life, after I got therapy and after I got help and after I got resources and after I got back into school and a house and a stability inside that notebook between the gibberish were some little bitty stories about girls and women little fictional stories, little fragments that took on a life in my heart and in my imagination. And those were the first stories I wrote um, when I was sort of more safe and sound in regular society. And so writing got born kind of late for me and it got born from trauma. And I'm not, you know, confused about that or ashamed to admit that it's where it came from. Did having that experience in life change your relationship to fear? Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt. Although I have to be honest, uh, growing up in my household, um, even though I'm a hardcore introvert now, when I was little, I 
fought my way out. I was a competitive swimmer. I was strong. I cried really loud. I was kind of tough um, for a good long while there <laughs> until I hit young adulthood. I was sort of raging and tough little muscly girl. Um, and so I wasn't, I was building a way to face my own fear with my body by and through my little muscly swimmer body. Um, but I was also the kid who didn't speak in public till she was about 13. And I was also a kid who had auditory hallucinations. And, and so I was a terrified child on the inside, just terrified all the time. And so I think I started forging my relationship to facing off with fear as a kid, but I didn't realize it till I was an adult. And when I hit storytelling, it gave me like a form, a shape to give to my fear and my rage and my sorrow. And, and in the world now, I try to help other people find the shapes and the forms of expression that might show them how to have a different relationship to their fear or to their anger. And would you say that you write from that place now, or it, would you describe it differently? I don't think I write from that place now because I've so changed my relationship to those emotions. You know, I've moved around them, they've moved around in me, and the place I write from now has more to do with my relationship to the natural world or to people I love or to people I want to um help give voice to or, you know, uh, open up pathways to or break down doors for. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's more about others around me and the world around me than that initial, I've got to find a way to speak my heart or I'll die. Well, I want to start talking about some of your stories. And the book opens with a, a story called The Pull. And it's about a young girl who is a swimmer in her country. And she's from the Middle East. The first paragraph says, um, In the water, the swimmer feels weightless. The blue of the pool fills her ears and holds her body and shuts out the world. Swimming is her favorite state of being. On land, the swimmer can barely breathe. And in that paragraph, you tell us so much then about what her life must be like. And then you learn that the pool that she swam in was bombed and two of her swimmer friends died. And then it turns to her leaving the country and she's in a raft with a bunch of people going, I think, uh, via Turkey and Greece to get away. And they are all in the boat and they experience some peril and you have a line in there that says we put children into the ocean and to me that really just made me feel like that the culpability for war lies in everybody and mm -hmm. I was really interested in that line but also the story and I'm just wondering um, if you want to talk more about the impetus for this and anything else you want to share sure um, thank you for your attention and thoughtfulness and this story is really important to me for so many different reasons. Um, so on one level, it's 
a story that's an homage to three different athletes I know uh, who are stateless com competitors because of the places they live are what we stupidly refer to as war-torn. And so when they compete in things like the Olympics, they, they don't get to claim a nation um, in the recent past. And, and so I know these three athletes, and I, I wanted to write an homage story. So that, that's one place where this story came from. Uh, a second place this story sort of comes from is my life and my being a swimmer. And I was a competitive swimmer for 20 years. And I have a sister. And we survived the war zone of our family. And we had to save ourselves. And some of the details about the sisters come from my actual life with my sister, but no one would know that except maybe her. Um, but those are threaded through. My, my personal life is threaded through without overtaking this homage story. And then the third thing, which you mentioned already, that this story, I mean, I don't know if it succeeds, but what I was scratching at is the idea that uh, this is the world we've made rather than, oh, this terrible thing is happening far away from me and I can point to it and cry when it appears in a news story, but I don't have to accept any responsibility. Um, this is a theme that has showed up in lots of my writing, in my novels, in short stories, in nonfiction, and that's how the ending of this story got born. I was... I wanted to end inside the reader, uh, for better or worse, um, and not with some resolution to a fictional, distant story about somebody else. That culpability that I mentioned and that you're saying is in a lot of your stories is probably endless fodder for art because you're right in saying that, but then it also feels so distant. It's like, how can I... What have right. I done to cause the mutilation of genitalia of women in Africa? But I have. Right. It, yeah, but it's a it's a hard gap to imagine your way across, right? Like, okay, what could I do in my life today that would begin to make a difference? It's so overwhelming. You can feel like, well, nothing. I'm a puny nobody. <laughs> um, and yet, you know what we consume, where we put our money, what we look at and don't look at, the ways in which we par participate or don't in our micro communities, who we choose as friends, who we lock out of our lives, you know, those really are the private realms that, you know, touch the big public and then even bigger global realms. Um, and, and so I guess Storytelling is a way to make the gap between your puny little you that you feel every day, like, what can I do? And the big events, storytelling is like a bridge between those two things where choices can vibrate a little bit instead of, you know, waking up every day and feeling like there's nothing we can do. The second story, The Oregon Runner, is, is a really intense story. I, I would love for you to read the last paragraph, and then we can talk about it, if you don't mind. And maybe we could set it up a little bit. Um, this is a story about a girl in Eastern Europe who 
uh, has a physical injury that keeps her from being good at the family farm in terms of her father. And so she is sort of sold out to distant family members where she enters a black market organ runner trade. And it means what you think it means, means um, physical organs that are bought and sold on a market. And she's a child laborer and she helps carry organs in clandestine ways for the larger, more powerful black market of organ running. I think we should say, too, just that when she goes to a distant relative, there's 17 other children. So she is living alongside all these other kids who are also used either for their organs or as an organ runner. And she also loves monkeys. When she was young, there was an accident and she had her hand grafted to her ankle for a little while to try to heal it, the nerves, and then it was put back. So you have two storylines going. You have her as the organ runner and then her injury, she was ended up giving this, this stuffed monkey that she loved and learned about Jane Goodall. So she kind of goes back and forth between this book of Jane Goodall she's reading and this horrific life every day. Anastasia thought of all the girls in the world who make transactions toward life away from death, buying time, buying hope, buying a chance or a way out. She thought about all the boys with the power to stop them with a hand to the throat or with a dollar or a whispered word. She thought about Jane Goodall and Africa and how some monkeys were released into sanctuaries and others were beaten and tortured and others were shot into space. She thought about the United States, those weird and deformed so-called states stitched together from a brutal and bloody beginning, still straining against their sutures like a hand sewn too close to a foot. How do any of us evolve, she wondered, from out of all this? Wow, you're really bringing everything she's an experience. And we should say there's a boy, I think it's, is it Kirill that you pronounced it? Yes. Kirill, who's um, in the family who abuses her. So she has that um, on her plate as well. I could ask what the impetus of this story is. It's like being organ donation, like under duress is real. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about writing this story? And I'm I'm also curious about the structure of having these two things going at once with Jane Goodall and how you modulate that and what you think it brings to the bigger story when you have multiple things going on. Well, this is almost every story in the book, Verge, is some form of homage story. And this is another homage story um, that originated with a student I worked with at Mount Hood Community College who had a life, not this life, but harrowing in a similar vein. And one thing this young woman was always saying to me is that when she came to America and she told people what her life had been, everybody thought she was saying a fiction. Nobody believed that that had actually been her life. And so even though the details in The Organ Runner are different from this girl's life, I wanted to write an homage story about uh, a young girl who transcends her difficulty in, you know, Valkyrie strength (laughs) and form and kind of breaks the wall of, I don't believe this would happen to anybody, kind of like a fable might or something. 
But I should tell you, too, that uh, this one draws from my life as well in that I have a lifelong obsession with Jane Goodall. So there's that. Uh, she was a pivotal figure for me intellectually and emotionally. And I have a lifelong love of primates. As an adult woman, I'm sure you will tell no one this secret. <laughs> I, I own 11 beautiful little stuffed monkeys. They're, you know, stuffed animal monkeys. And one of them, named Cassandra, is just missing a paw, or whatever we call them, a hand. And so the hand idea came literally from this one little stuffed monkey my husband gave me one year for Christmas that was a vintage monkey that was missing a hand. And as I gave this character of Anastasia, this, my obsession, you know, my personal obsession with Jane Goodall, that little Cassandra stuff money, she just wanted in the story too. And so I gave her to Anastasia. <laughs> and so that, you know, structurally, it often goes like this for me. I, I don't find closed doors between fiction and nonfiction. And I find the weaving of the personal and the, you know, the worldly or the fictional or the imagined to be exactly the same thing that happens when you go to sleep and dream at night. The real world material gets mixed up with your, your personal and most deep psychic material. And, and I think that's part of how I structure stories. And how do you think about making greater meaning out of your stories. Like you were saying, you know, you had a student who had this kind of experience that you wanted to write about, but then you're bringing in these ideas of females place in the world and men's power over them. And like, are you a big reviser? Do you think about things a lot before you even put them on the page? Well, I do carry ideas for stories around in my body a while before they make it to the page. I don't plot them out or um, outline them or anything like that. I think I just mean they're in my belly or my heart or my bones or something for a while before I, I even approach the page with a story. It's like I'm trying to I'm trying to get clear on the feelings, not like somebody else might make a structural outline. I never do that. But I, I need to feel kind of clear on the feelings. And I have to be honest with you in terms of, like, if politics emerge or patriarchy emerges or feminism things emerge, I'm not ever sitting there thinking, I shall now put the feminism here. <laughs> you know what I mean? What I think is more true is if you tell the truth about bodies and experiences and the material conditions around a person, the importance or the political or moral or ethical implications emerge from you telling the strongest story you can and you getting to the deepest emotions of a character or, a, or even yourself if it's nonfiction, not from trying to bring the big idea or the important idea from the outside and place it on top of what you're trying to tell. I think it emerges from storytelling itself. Yes, that's part of the alchemy of all of it. Yeah, and the deeper you go into story and the deeper you're willing to explore and risk things, the deeper the ideas get coming out for the reader. I wondered if you had a lot of 
ties or any ties to Eastern Europe just because of your last name. I'm not sure the origin of it, but I, your, your stories are so international and I didn't know if that was a part of your sensibility. Uh, yes. And here is how my paternal side of the family was Lithuanian. So there's, a Eastern European ancestry there. Yuknovich is a version of Yuknovicius, which is what the name was in Lithuania, and through immigration got hacked, like so many names, to the name Yukman. And when I became an adult, I went through the paperwork and the fees you have to pay to get something close to what our original name was on that side of my family. And then in addition to that, in the last years that I was a competitive athlete, there was a lot of international travel for us as swimmers. And we also had billeted international swimming people come live with us. So uh, Russians and Chinese swimmers. And I think that also sort of threaded into my heart and psyche that um, that competitive athlete world was much more diverse than the places I lived and went to school and, you know, the experiences I had growing up. I thought on another level, you know, you were talking in the very beginning about being on the verge and all these people kind of on precipices and in the middle of two worlds and maybe maybe at a point where everything could change for them. But I also found that this collection was so much about want, like a deep want like the want that eats you a want that is so powerful it drives you every day oh good call Mitzi <laughs> good call and so you agree <laughs> oh yes yes I might have I was gonna say I might have used a different word I might have used the word desire unbound but that's that's want that's want and every character and every storyline has a sort of insatiable want, which is kind of what you're saying, yes. Um, a want bigger than a body, for sure. And sometimes that uh, manifests as addiction. In one story it does, at least, more than one. And in other stories it's, I want to live and not be killed by bombs. And in another story it's, I want to be loved by my brother and be like him, or I want to survive this grief that's killing me. You're right. They're all about want. And at the same time, I'd say I've tried at least in every story to um, kind of leave that want open, ended, open enough that it doesn't move toward capitalism or commodity-like don't worry, if you just buy this, it'll be better. <laughs> if you just become this kind of identity, that want will be taken care of. There's something deeply human about the idea that want lives in a body. And what, what could we learn if we let want be something not to be cured or fulfilled or given its end point or product, but... What if want could drive us to see each other differently and admit that the person next to you has want too and it's what makes us like each other instead of unlike each other? You know, what if want is a human binding force and not 
something you have to feed. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think about of it too is so based to the the characters in your book and really so based to what it means to be human. I think yeah. I think that kind of want also at least in my life, it leads me to feeling so incredibly lonely. And I also feel like that want is also what binds so many people. Yeah, it's such a tricky thing. I mean, we've been told stories about what to do with want. And I guess I'm suggesting, and maybe I'll keep exploring this in in newer work, what if we could do something else with all this want besides feel so lonely and like we never get what we need and and we always you know it's unending this want what if we put it somewhere more productive and generative and i'm not saying i know how to do that i'm saying what if you mentioned a lot of stories with want one of the ones that you you mentioned was um it's called cusp and it's a young girl who is living in her junkie brother's room in the attic room in their house and she is a good student she goes to school her life seems like it's on a much better course than his I mean he went to college it turns out he dropped out and is selling drugs and she just starts to get a little bit lost and if I'm interpreting any of this wrong please let me know but no um, no you're you're right and and that as she moves up into the room and is really, really also missing him, she starts to sort of slip in her security in the things that make her less at peril of the dangers of the world. And at the same time, there's a prison being built right out her window, and mm-hmm. she watches it being built, and she ends up not in a good place. I don't know how much we can say or you would want to say. <laughs> she, I love the way you put that. Um it's a slow slippage, isn't it? She's she's slipping a little at a time away from one storyline of who she could turn out to be and toward this other more perilous edge that's both taking form right next to her house and representative in the brother's life. Um, I just really like the way you put that. It's a It's an edge where slippage is occurring. Her parents gave her Shakespeare, so she had this opportunity to sort of read her way into this better life. But she ends up visiting the prison and she ends up making connections with people in the prison who she doesn't even know. Mm-hmm. And then can we say that she she starts bringing them drugs and contraband? We, we can. Okay. Some people <laughs> really don't like to talk about the endings and I, I don't know where you are about that. So. Oh, no, go for it. Yeah. I actually, total aside, but I actually, for my MFA, I did... Um, research on if people know the endings of stories or not. And I found this study that people actually like the stories more when they know the ending first. That doesn't surprise me at all. That's probably me. I often pick them up and read the ending first. <laughs> but tell no one. <laughs> this is such a tangent, but I think it's sort of the difference a little bit between suspense and surprise that I actually feel like when I know the ending, like I love stories that mix up time and they tell you the ending at the very beginning and then you're mm-hmm. just journeying towards that. And yeah. I think what that allows me to do is I read it with like 
this wonder in my stomach. Like, is this going to lead them to that end? Is this going to lead them to that end? Where it's, it's like almost in a box, like there's borders. Whereas when there isn't, like anything in the whole entire world can happen. And so I'm less attentive in a certain way. I know what you mean, uh, more than you know. I mean, most of my novels uh, pull in historical figures, and I just, you know, you already know what happened in Joan of Arc, but I want to, like, take the story someplace else. <laughs> and so I, write, I, uh, I, I definitely identify with the feeling you're talking about with endings. And in this story, you know, the ending is in the beginning. When she's in her brother's room, you kind of already know, uh-oh, <laughs> So what was the what was the inspiration for that? Well, interestingly, Shakespeare and the drama of some of his characters and their stories to me and and even a little bit Greek drama. I was just trying for a small Texas town version of that epic kind of drama with those epic Shakespearean or Greek characters, you know, where you know, like Hamlet or, you know, or where brothers and sisters uh, fall for each other and don't know what to do about it, or where Romeo and Juliet, you know, like just these really dramatic coordinates and then um, characters who have everything going for them and have their path laid out in front of them and it's they're going to be fine, still choose the shit choice. <laughs> still, They're too seduced by the transgressiveness or, or deliciousness of the choice that's more taboo, or they have a want they can't fill, uh, to bring your earlier point back, with choosing the good life or the right choice. And so that's one place the story came from. But my mother's side of the family is from Texas, and I went to college in Lubbock, and my cousin, my boy cousin, was a very good friend of mine who I had Stored when we were growing up, and he went to prison. So again, <laughs> there are some you know pieces of my life that mm, wove into this this sort of shell of a story about this brother sister and girl living in the small town that I wanted to give epic dramatic proportions too. And then later in life, I too um, had everything going for me, flunked out of college, got arrested, um, did a little bit of an incarceration time, community service. Um, so I have been the misfit person who, whose choices take them down the darker path. So I'm in and out of that story as well. What do you think it is at that moment when you make the choice that takes you down the dark path? I've thought about this <laughs> way too much. Um, on some, like, simple level, um, and this is, you know, a lot of people will not agree with this, but on some simple level, um, stability and good citizenship and contentedness has no drama. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. There, there, there's no dramatic arc, and it could leave a person craving, you know, some highs and lows because life is drama. Life is dramatic. It contains highs and lows all over the place. And so, again, on a, on a simple level, I think we're drawn toward 
conflict and difficulty and obstacles and tensions, not because it's anybody's fault or there are good people and bad people or um, sick people and well people, but because it's the human default to be interested in or seduced by tensions and questions and mysteries and drama and, and scary things, things that scare us or feel transgressive are exciting. And, you know, even if you're just watching it on TV, it's more exciting than a program about someone who's pretty content every day and nothing happens to them. Um, so on some level, I think it, it, it's a little bit as simple as that. And then there are some very psychologically deep discussions we could have about a more complex kind of answer. But I mean, those are the choices that make fiction good. Right? You can't have a flatline fiction story. There must be difficulty. There must be drama. There must be a seduction of the reader into places and people and actions that Get, you know, make the pulse race. But I think it's true in our lives, too. You have so many stories in here, and part of the reason is because you are able to pack in a lot in some that are very short, very few pages. Obviously, it's just what that story needs, but mm -hmm. I find that kind of compression really difficult, and I'm wondering if you do, too, or any strategies or just your thoughts about that. Well, over the years, I've become very obsessed with the literary fragment or the short, short form as a kind of, um, you use the word compressed, that's a good word, a, a kind of, you know, microcosm of the larger story. You know, what if a single image could carry the weight of a 30-page story? That's an interesting question to me. And the reason I like to explore it as a writer is... Uh, in my real life, in my lived experience, sometimes a tiny moment or a glimpse of something carries more weight for me than like the big dramatic event that just happened. Like the little thing off to the side or the breath before the big event or the breath after, those moments are as fascinating to me as, you know, like my father died, big event, right? Um, but the before and the after and the in-between and the things just out of sight, the things in the periphery. I like to capture those little little fragmented, tiny stories because um, sometimes I think the weight of experience lives more there than in the big dramatic events themselves. And I'm still exploring this myself, but some, some structural things to try if anybody's interested in the literary fragment. Um, would be to see how much storytelling you can get in a single image of an object or a plant or animal or something. Can you find drama, a whole drama arc inside a single image? There's a little story by Virginia Woolf about watching a moth die, you know, like a moth on the windowsill. And it's this epic tale. <laughs> it's like one page story, but by the time you finish the story, you've experienced the same weight as if, you know, a big death has happened in a character's life that took 30 pages to tell. And so it's just a really challenging and beautiful and amazing 
exploration to try it on the page. A good way to try it is to try to write a triptych in this way. Write three 200-word fragments from three different times in your life in a single place or a single kind of event or a single kind of feeling so that you're moving around it, whatever it is, with these tiny little micro stories that all address it, but they come from different ages of you-ness. You know, like you could create a theme like quiet and write three 200-word fragments from three different times in your life on just what quiet triggers in you. And so they're micro stories and you won't know what they're about until you do them. <laughs> uh, I'd highly recommend it. It's great to play around with. They're really challenging. Um, and then you have three of them. So then you get to decide what to do about that. Did any of the stories in this collection begin that way or from a kind of a, an exercise? Um, let me look for a sec. Well, sure. Uh, so, you know, all the, in this book, there are, and you kind of alluded to these earlier, there are these short little bursts of story, micro stories, and they're all about women on the verge of making some kind of choice in their lives and they never resolve. And you don't know if it's one woman and a bunch of different times in her life, or if it's a bunch of different women and they're just glimpses. They're just like a frozen snapshot of a moment in a woman's life where she's about to do something. You know, she's on the verge, get it? <laughs> um, and those stories came out of an exploration I gave myself uh, to write 30 of those as one story, just glimpses of women who are about to do something. And how they ended up in the book is just some of those are in there. There aren't 30 of them. I think there's like five or something of them. But it was a hoot to write 30 of them because I didn't have to worry about what the story was about. It's about all these women on the edge of something, getting ready to do something weird or crazy or good or bad. Um, and I just, you know, like listed them all in a row and I wrote them in a frenzy and it was really fun and I think everyone should try it. So many of these stories have almost a sublime anger. Like the anger is just beautiful. It's transformative mm -hmm. and spiritual. Oh, I'm so glad you noticed that. I think my interest in how how heavy the weight in culture is to the messages we get to contain the rage or anger of women and of people of color and indigenous people, like um, like our anger is out of control or hysterical or destructive, you know, like you can be an angry man and ascend to the Supreme Court justice. You can angry cry on the floor of Congress and be become, you know, a Supreme Court justice. But if you're a woman and you raise your voice or if you're a black person and you raise your voice or if you're AOC and you raise your voice, you know, that's like, woo, dangerous anger there. And so um, I'll be working in this category or in this theme the rest of my life to restore the beauty and generative qualities of anger and rage when they are put to, you know, a variety of uses and, and not contained by oppressive powers. Um, 
very fascinated with that and probably will be my whole life. Anger is used against disenfranchised populations so that power populations can stay on top. And usually that's been white and male. Yeah, when you're angry about how much you loved your beer in college, it doesn't matter. Right. Right. Poor Brett. Poor Brett. Can you share a passage from a writer that influenced you? Yes. So this is a little excerpt from a book called We the Animals by Justin Torres. And it is on the topic of want. And so that's partly why I chose it. And this little excerpt is about three little boys growing up together in a kind of poverty and all they have is each other. And that's all I'll say about that. We wanted more. We knocked the butt ends of our forks against the table, trapped our spoons against our empty bowls. We were hungry. We wanted more volume, more riot. We turned up the knob on the TV until our ears ached with the shouts of angry men. We wanted more music on the radio. We wanted beats. We wanted rock. We wanted muscles on our skinny little arms. We had bird bones, hollow and light. And we wanted more density, more weight. We were six snatching hands, six stomping feet. We were brothers, boys, three little kings locked in a feud for more. When it was cold, we fought over blankets until the cloth tore the middle. When it was really cold, when our breath came out in frosty clouds, Manny crawled into bed and Joel and me, body heat, he said, body heat, we agreed together. We wanted more flesh, more blood, more warmth. Do you want to say more about that? It just makes me ball every time I read that section, also the whole book. Uh, and one thing that I think it's amazing for writers to go to school on is the way in which he's able to um, squeeze poetics out of prose and bring what poet poetry does so well, which is an emphasis on image and the distillation of language and rhythms in language and poetics, bringing that into prose and saying, this is a way of telling the story too, of creating content uh, to make rhythms and images and repetitions as potent as, um, you know, a more prosaic way of establishing character and obstacle and climax, etc. And so I guess what I think is more uh, prose writers should talk to poets and poets should talk to prose writers because we have a lot to learn from each other. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, I can. And it's from the first story you talked about called The Pull. And it's toward the end. And... I'll read and then I'll say what, why it was tricky or hard. There is a pull for some people when they are in big water, a pull no one talks about. The pull comes to people whose lives are too weighted, people whose lives break the story and travel to realms everyone else fears. The pull is cool and warm at the same time. It releases a body back to history. It's something like amniotic fluid, only stronger. 
and most people who feel the pull let themselves go down a little sink underwater some. They let their arms and legs go limp and they close their eyes and hold their breath with a superhuman calm, the kind of calm that comes to people who believe as children that they can breathe underwater. Those who feel the pull then experience one of two things. Some thrash toward exhaustion, then move toward a kind of motionless surrender as the water enters what used to be their breathing as it did before we were born. Then there are the others who open their eyes underwater and a rush of agency comes into them, much bigger than breath, and they bicep and kick their way back to the surface and pull air back into their lungs in a great gulp. They fight for life. And the reason that was tricky or hard for me to write is um, that my father drowned in the ocean and my second husband's stepfather drowned in a river. I have several drowning um, incidents in, in my life where I was in close proximity to people who didn't make it. Uh, and yet I'm a lifelong swimmer. And so to take the metaphor on of drowning being a sad, death-oriented thing and drowning or almost drowning also being a life force for some was was very tricky for me. It had a lot of emotions in it. Plus, I'm not afraid of the water. You know, I'm the person who could save anyone in the water or um, swim more miles than anybody or swim faster than people. And so to look at water as something that could terrify people or harm them. Um, it's tricky territory for me. Where do you write? I have, uh, at this point in my life, not always, um, I used to have to write on buses and in bars and in bathrooms and no space, but at this point in my life, I have a dedicated room. I have painted the walls midnight blue, almost black, because I have light sensitivity. There's very little, not very many lights on, so it's kind of like being underwater or in a cave. And there are books and um, feathers and sticks and rocks and little talismans and shells and things like that all over the place because I am a collector of objects and a nester. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? When I can, I get in water, which is, I'm sure, a shocker to hear from me at this point. I go swimming. I go to my neighborhood pool as long as it's open. If I can't get in the pool, I'll get in a river or the ocean. If I can't do that, I'll stand in the rain or just go get in the shower. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband, Domingo, and my sister are the first two people who... I trust enough to let look at things and tell me the truth. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I think we give rejection too much weight, and I try to help people in the world come to this idea. All rejection means is that you should just go stand next to something else. You should just change your location. And instead of standing in the kitchen, go stand next to a tree. Or instead of standing next to the tree, go stand next to the dog. It just means you have to shift your position and turn your gaze to, uh, you know, difference. It's, it doesn't mean what we let it mean. And what is your favorite word? Oh, man, I thought a long time about this one because I love language so much. I love that language exists and that it, it disobeys us and that it's an ocean in and of itself. 
but I'll give you one anyway. I love the word palimpsest. I just want to say thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. I'm, I'm really deeply grateful. Oh, man, the pleasure was mine. And I love talking to you. And that's not always fun. But this was deeply, deeply pleasurable. Thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Lydia Yuknovich, author of the short story collection, Verge. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Karen Russell on our short story collection, Orange World, which features female characters living in precarious circumstances alongside the absurd. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Viet Tan Nguyen, Anna North, Mbolo Mbue, and Leila Alamar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.